I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to talk about how to sell, specifically how to sell during the earliest days when you're part of a small team or you're the whole team and you're trying to make your first sale. Or maybe you're trying to figure out whether you can sell something before you build it to make sure people care first. If you're doing that, you're after my heart. Selling makes most entrepreneurs uncomfortable, so they mostly ignore it. Selling goes directly against most instincts great entrepreneurs have. We tend to be empathetic, to be in lockstep with the feelings of our customer. And since selling is branded as an imposition, we feel like we're imposing. And we're hypersensitive to it. You might even feel this way. You probably do. This is a huge opportunity. If you embrace selling and build a system around it, you'll plop yourself in the minority of businesses that approach sales that way, or really in any way. There's always delta in the things that make most people uncomfortable. People think they hate sales because it makes us feel dirty. We associate selling with people listening to Grant Cardone audiobooks and quoting Wolf of Wall Street and wearing shirts that have white collars but the rest of the shirt is blue. Also, cologne is definitely in the mix. Most importantly, we equate sales with people pushing things on us that we don't want. People forcing us to firmly say no, often multiple times, until they go away. That is uncomfortable, and humans hate feeling uncomfortable. And we definitely don't want to be the reason someone else feels uncomfortable. But most of us have an even deeper relationship with sales than that. Our core aversion to sales is rooted in fear. Sales puts us on the hook. Here's an example. Companies in Tacklebox quickly get to the point where they need to get actual customers, and one of the tasks we have our companies do is to acquire one paying customer over a weekend. Just one. The way that 99% of our startups go about this is through some sort of social ad. They try to get in front of 10,000 people on Instagram, hope to convert them to a landing page, then eventually to a sale. Most of these tests end up with zero customers. When I hear the results, I'll often ask why they didn't just pick people out one at a time and sell directly to them. They've all done customer interviews by this point. Why not just reach out to the customer who's anchoring their persona, the customer they decided they would build for, the one they've already started talking to and already built trust with? The answer is that it's consciously or subconsciously too telling. A no from 10,000 faceless strangers is fine. It feels like you just need to tweak some things and you'll figure it out. But a no from one person who you can cater your pitch to, who you know has the problem, who you know should be excited about what you're building, that is devastating. It's really fun to play startup. It's not fun to get a no that shakes the core of what you're building, or feels like it does. So we avoid the potential of the information-filled no and keep our feet firmly on the beach with our head in the sand. People avoid sales because it puts them on the hook. I'd like to just tell you to get over that, to deal with it. Entrepreneurs need to be on the hook, so just figure it out. But that's not all that helpful because it won't work. Framing sales differently, though, will. At Tacklebox, we flip sales around and take a different perspective. We even call it something different. Because for early stage entrepreneurs, it is something different. We're not selling, we're vetting. We aren't hoping someone chooses you, we're deciding whether or not you'll choose them. We're finding out who will definitely get a ton of value from our product, who will definitely pay for it. 
or stacking the deck in our favor so much that it'd be patently absurd for that customer to not buy from us. We vet, then they buy. And if they don't buy, there was a problem with the vetting. One of our assumptions was wrong, and we need to explore it and change it. Then, vet again. Like everything, this is a process you won't nail on day one, so we need to build a system for it. There are three tactics I'll talk through today that'll get us started. And to do that, to get to what I think of as clean selling, we'll have to start with the people who do the absolute dirtiest selling on planet Earth. The people we all don't want to be. The people who give sales a bad name. The people at the Honda dealership in Riverhead, Long Island. After a little smooth jazz. Quick ad today and something for you. The ad is for Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, apply at gettacklebox.com. We'll get back to you in under 72 hours. Use the code BUILDRIGHT to get 50% off your first month if accepted. We've helped over 400 people build businesses collectively worth over a billion dollars, and I'll guarantee you most of them started with less than you've got right now. Come join us if you're working on something. And now, something that might be helpful for you. I'm going to open up my schedule for Friday, June 24th for rapid fire meetings. Head to gettacklebox.com, scroll down a bit to where the apply button is, and right below it, I'm going to add in a chat with us button. Okay, back to it. Everyone hates car salesmen, except me. I kind of love them. I've got a soft spot for them. Well, I hate them, but I love how pure the interaction is. It's rare that there's such a ridiculous scenario pitting two people directly against each other. And car sales is that. The potential buyer walks onto the lot because they want a car. There is no other reason to be there. The car salesman only makes money if they sell that person a car. Both the salesman and the buyer know the rules of the game. The car salesman will start by offering an initial price. In the back of their mind, that salesman has an absolute low price they'll sell for. Their job is to convince the buyer they're already at that price. The buyer's job is to hold out. It's primal, wildly uncomfortable, and pretty miserable. I get a kick out of it and chills thinking about it at the same time. Which brings us to Riverhead. I leased a Honda CRV during the pandemic from a dealership there, and over the past few weeks, they've been emailing me constantly saying that used car prices for CRVs are skyrocketing and that they'd like to buy me out of my lease agreement so that they can sell my car. It all seemed kind of reasonable, believable, and I was over our allotted miles. My wife and I had talked a lot about how we deal with all the extra miles we'd driven. This seemed like a possible out. I called Honda to hear more, and on the phone they sounded desperate. They needed cars to sell and would offer me a great deal so that they could sell them. We'd get a new car at our current lease for a trade-in. But they needed me to bring in the car before they could make an offer. I thought, hey, maybe this all makes sense. So I went in. What a rookie mistake. Our salesperson said hello and asked to see the car to assess it. As we walked together to the parking lot, the hairs on the back of my neck started standing up, like someone who sits down at a poker table and then realizes that everyone else at the table already knows each other. I felt like the patsy. The salesperson asked for my keys, which seemed like an odd thing to ask for, but maybe she needed to inspect them too, so I handed them over. I'd regret that later. The exterior inspection lasted a few minutes and we were told the car was in good shape. Then she took a look inside and her face twisted into a Grinch stole Christmas-like smile. She had something on me. You know, she said, you're over your allotted lease miles. That'll cost you. That was the only thing she wrote down on her notepad. Every instinct told me to just ask for the keys and get on with my Saturday. But for some reason, I decided that would be rude, so we continued. 
We went back inside to the weird desk area where my salesperson said they go into the back to see what they could, quote, do for me. Five minutes of fake conversation later, she came back with a proposal. They'd take my car back, give me a new CRV for a three-year lease, and the value of my car would cancel out some other charge, and I'd only have to pay $2,500 today. Oh, and my lease payments would go up by about $100 a month. My wife and I laughed. Yeah, no thanks. We didn't come here to pay lots more money. We came here because you said you'd give us money for the car. Could we please have the keys back? Sure, she said, but those miles, those extra miles are really going to cost you. I said that was okay. We'd just like to leave. The keys were in the back, she said. She'd have to go get them. The damn keys. Nicely done. She went back to get them, but came back with another offer instead. Good news, she said. Her manager said she could cut some charges and it'd only be two grand today. And the monthly lease payments would only be about $50 more than we were already paying. Yeah, no thanks. Just the keys, please. She then asked what price we would need to take the deal. We told her no upfront payment and the same monthly pricing we currently had. You know, the thing you said in the email. She said she'd see what she could do. My keys were officially on hostage alert. A few more minutes passed and she emerged with an older guy with a mafia vibe. He said he'd been on the phone with HQ, whatever that meant, and that they could go down to some number because of some whatever, and that unfortunately his hands were tied because of the extra miles we had on the car. Those were the problem. Those would screw me in the end, he said. He'd really pushed for us with the higher-ups, he said, because he liked our dog Ruby, but he just couldn't go any lower. We were getting an amazing deal. Cool, I said, just the keys then, and we'll be on our way. He tossed out some last-ditch offer before realizing angrily that we weren't actually interested. For a second, I legitimately thought he wasn't ever going to give us back our keys before he eventually ambled back and grabbed them. We got in the car and vowed to never buy a Honda again. I feel like I need some sorbet to cleanse the palate after that story, but there are actually a lot of great lessons to learn from it for startups. And it'll tie nicely into the three pillars of sales we're going to talk about today. The three things our startups mess up the most or are most hesitant around. The three things are, first, how to reach out to a potential customer, second, how to talk about price, and third, how to build a system around the whole thing that's automated, but not spray and pray. We'll start at the top, how to reach out to a potential customer, how to kick off the sales process. The key to selling anything to anyone is trust. They need to know that you've got their best interest at heart, because again, humans have an innate ability to realize they're being sold to, and they absolutely hate it. And even if you trick them, like Honda did with that initial email to me, the other shoe is going to fall and they're going to be pissed. There are a few ways to build trust. Let's use an example to suss through them. I'm pretty interested in this guided sabbatical idea. I think I mentioned it in another pod. I don't have a punny name for it yet, but the episode is young and I'm working on it. Anyway, the idea is that companies can offer time off to an employee in a way that will actually refresh the employee. A science-backed way to fight burnout. Most vacations and long weekends end up with the employee more tired than when they started. But research is coming out on restorative processes that can actually fight burnout. But that won't happen by accident. This company would facilitate them. The target business would be one that's seen a lot of turnover or a lot of employees talking about burnout. The initial sales goal, as with most B2B businesses, would be to get someone on the phone. That would be the top of the sales funnel. Cold emails that convert to calls have always been tricky, but now they are nearly impossible. You'll need to keep this in mind. Your customer is not waiting for you to email. Quite the opposite. They are absolutely inundated with crap, and the absolute last thing they want is for you to email them. 
I get 50 to 100 emails a week now from agencies that are trying to get their clients interviewed on this podcast. The emails all look nearly identical. Quote, hey, we love your podcast. The episode, insert whatever last episode title I had that was clearly auto-generated by their email tool, was one of our favorites. I represent blah, 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 their business, blah, blah, blah. Your audience would love them because blah, blah, blah. We were just on Product Hunt or raised $10 million or blah, blah, blah. Here are the other podcasts they've been on. When can we schedule time for them to be a guest on your show? It's an obvious form email and enters me into a drip campaign. A few days later, I get an email that says, hey, just making sure you saw the opportunity to speak to blah, blah, blah. Then a day or two later, something like, you're harder to get in touch with the Pope. Ha, ha, ha. If you want to speak with blah, blah, blah. These emails are as lazy as they are disrespectful. It's spray and pray, basically saying, hey, you know all that trust you've built with your audience over three years of weekly episodes and restaurant puns? I'd love it if we can just have that for my client for free without any effort on our end. How about that? And since there's no penalty for this sort of email, they get away with it. This is going to make your job extremely tough. You'll be lumped in with everyone else who is using email for bad reasons. So we've got to build trust fast, like crazy fast, because email is still the best way for you to sell. There are a few ways for you to build trust. The first and most effective is problem specificity. Describing exactly the problem you'll solve for the customer in a way that would be hard for anyone else to know will snap them out of their email scanning ways. I got an email the other day from someone wanting to be on the pod that leapt out. He'll be on next month. He is the only person I've interviewed that ever reached out through a cold email in three years. The subject line said, quote, the no-code audience will love Idea to Startup. The body of the email said, hey, I love your podcast and have shared a few episodes in the no-code community I facilitate. Note, flattery works. Most people jump right in with, hi, I'm blah, 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 me, 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 me. Talk about the person you're emailing first. It'll get their attention. The email continued. I've even heard from a few people who went back and listened to every episode after I recommended it. That first paragraph earned my attention and let me read the second. Quote, I think you've got a ton of potential listeners in the no-code community and I think no-code would be interesting to your core listeners. I've built 10 businesses that have grossed over $100 million without writing a line of code and I'd love to come on and talk about it. I've only got 5,000 Twitter followers, but engagement on my last guest appearance on a podcast was sky high. I bet we can get you 500 new subs, and with your back catalog, that's probably 5,000 downloads. I responded immediately. Trust comes from specificity. He knew me. He chose me. The reason he chose me made sense. He's selling me to be here, no doubt. He wants the audience to hear about his newest product. But he focused on the value for me, not for him. Trust from the subject line led to trust from the first paragraph, which led to trust for the rest of the email, which led to a call, which led to, for him, a sale. Another way to build trust is through location. If you're selling something to parents and you hand them a flyer at a niche restaurant that caters to parents with two-year-olds, you'll immediately earn some cachet. If you're pitching the no-code community and you do it on a Discord thread with no-code folks, that works. You see what I'm getting at. People like us spend time in places like this. Another avenue for trust is to borrow it from someone the person already trusts. Warm intros obviously work. There's no need to spend more time on that. But all of these pale in comparison to the absolute best way to build trust and the absolute best way to sell. And that is to be an expert, an unapologetic, open expert. To have more context than your customers do on the specific problem you're solving for them. To know things they don't. 
to know what they've tried and know why it didn't work, to study their problem and to be obsessed with it. This gets back to our idea of vetting potential customers as a sales tactic. Here's what it might look like if we were reaching out to a company with our sabbatical product. Hello, burnout is the number one cause of turnover in the tech industry. Companies have tried to solve this through on-site meditation, unlimited PTO, four-day work weeks, and even forced time off. Companies felt each of these tactics were worth the effort because turnover, particularly in this job market, is your largest expense and the least predictable. Replacing a mid-level engineer usually ends up costing over a hundred grand. Losing them to a competitor might cost you 10 times that. Unfortunately, none of these tactics were constructed to specifically and effectively treat burnout. Most are band-aids at best and lip service at worst. We offer two-week guided employee sabbaticals that use science-based techniques to reduce stress, depression, and anxiety. This resets employees and decreases turnover. If you've tried some of the approaches above and are ready to commit to a solution, reach out. If you haven't and want to dip your toe in, of all the tactics above, on-site meditation has resonated best with some burnt-out employees. Here's our favorite company that offers it. To chat with us, grab some time below. We hit on the problem, the cost of the problem, and inflection points companies that are committed to solving the problem hit. The email is vetting the customer. If you recognize that burnout leads to turnover, and turnover is a problem for you, and if you've shown that problem is worth solving by taking these other actions, maybe you're ready for us. If you're not quite ready, try meditation. That suggestion even builds trust. The goal is to pull the company to your side of the table, to make it feel like the two of you are fighting this problem together and that you're the expert taking them through. I'm looking at houses to move out of the city and last week we met a realtor at an open house he'd suggested. He did an amazing job of building trust immediately in a place where he could feel really salesy. He walked us around and immediately pointed out all the flaws in the house we were looking at. Yeah, there's a big hole in the driveway, he said. And when it rains, where does all the water that goes into that hole end up? I nodded furiously, even though I had no idea why water going into the ground would be a problem. Seems like that's where water ends up going anyway, but I was sold. And if they don't fix that, he continued, what else are they hiding? We went through the tour and he pointed out thing after thing he didn't like. At the end, he looked at us and said, I wouldn't spend another second on this home if I were you. Then he pointedly walked us through the general buying process. I don't get paid by the people who own the house, he said, so I'm on your side. I'm happy to tell you when a house stinks and this house stinks. Now, if I were cynical, I'd say he probably showed us that first house as a way to gain trust. It was an opportunity for him to point out a bunch of stuff so that we knew he wouldn't steer us wrong, to show he was an expert to ensure that we go see 10 more houses with him and that he'd end up being the one who got the commission when we found one we liked. But it did work and I do trust him and I will work with him more. Figuring out something like this to build trust with your customer initially isn't the worst idea and it'll force you to understand their problem. Providing value is really hard. For your first interaction, trust is the key. Trust means picking people purposefully, knowing the problem they have and reinforcing it in a way that couldn't possibly be a form email. Trust means being an expert, knowing more about the problem than they do. Trust means helping them solve it, whether that's with you or without you. Trust isn't knowing the name of their dog or being their buddy or grabbing a beer. That's how things used to work. Trust now is about asking hard questions about their process, poking and prodding, making them better, knowing your stuff and flexing your muscles. You're a consultant, and if you vet customers properly, the solution for some of them will be the thing you've built. For others, not. 
and that's fine. And one more example because people seem to love examples. I got an email last week that said in the subject, hey, I love the pod, and in the body, just one line, do more examples. So here are more examples. I ran an ad for Idea to Startup last week, and a few days after I got an email from a podcast agency. It had a Loom video embedded, and it said, thoughts on your ad. It was an employee at the agency breaking down my specific ad, saying things like, we've actually seen people have way more success if they refer to a specific episode, and you should definitely mention that people should click, and then talking about how there should be more social proof, some mention of the episode length, and I should try just quoting a review. Then she said, if you want to have us in your corner on all this, let's hop on a call because this ad just isn't up to snuff. You wasted your money. I'm not sure I've ever clicked on a button fast enough. Trust. Problem. Pick your customer. Let them know you're picking them. Be an expert. It's hard, but it's way harder to not do it. The other moment I want to talk about today is price, specifically what to do with it. People clam up when they talk about price. They ignore it, they charge too little, they don't charge anything, they give discounts, they minimize their impact. Price, again, is used to validate customer, to validate if the opportunity is worth your time. So yes, price needs to be involved in your earliest discussions. If I were selling sabbaticals, I'd mention it right away on the first call. You're vetting customers. If they can't or won't pay what you're worth, you don't want to spend any more time with them. I'd say something like, our sabbaticals end up costing businesses $10,000 per employee. Companies we've worked with have gotten a little bit of sticker shock because they can bring in someone to lead meditation or yoga or other wellness classes for one-tenth that amount. But we aren't for people who want to put a band-aid on the solution. We solve the problem. We reduce turnover and increase an employee's job satisfaction. If turnover costs you 100k, paying 10k to avoid it is netting you 90k. And employees know it's a big outlay for you, which means they take it seriously. When they need it, it's there and it works. Most companies take it out of the hiring budget or salary pool. You'll have a surplus after running the program for a little while. Always talk about the price in relation to the problem and the cost of the problem. Make sure whoever you're speaking with sees the problem as expensive as you see it. Put it in context so that they don't do it without you. And make sure you give them a talking point to share internally. Sure, it's expensive, but paying 10k to save 100k is a no-brainer. Now use that like a game of telephone. And make sure you help them understand where the money will come from, why it's better spent here, why this better solves the problem. And now, the emotional price disclaimer. Charging a lot is going to feel weird and it's going to feel unnatural. You won't want to do it because you'll say that your product isn't ready, it isn't worth that amount, you're not worth that amount. But it's critical that you quote the price you'll need to charge. Price is a test, and price will go down as your company matures. The first customers you work with should theoretically be the ones you could charge the highest price to. They'll be the ones most desperate for a solution. It's a general, basic price elasticity curve. They have a serious problem and no one has solved it and they're willing to take a chance on a new business because of that. As you move to the right on the adoption curve, you'll end up with people who don't see the problem like the first group and aren't quite as motivated to solve it. You'll need to add more features for them and you'll need to lower the cost. The first group of customers is your chance to price high. It'll anchor the business. We need to make sure it's realistic, that this business makes sense. We need to make sure the price is part of your story. The problem is important, so the solution is expensive. That lines up. The last thing I want to talk about is the system. When I get the emails from people reaching out to get people on the podcast, I type in colon colon guest and a nicely written paragraph pops up. 
I use a tool called Text Expander, which allows me to trigger snippets of text with specific keystrokes. This one says, thank you so much for reaching out, but we aren't accepting guests right now. Then there's a link for them to put in their information if they'd like me to reach out when we are. Basically, no one ever fills that out. But the point is, I used to have to think about this each time I wanted to say no to people. It was draining. Uncomfortable things are draining. The system lets me do it easily. Building your sales system will do the same. Don't confuse system with spray and pray. We are still only reaching out to handpick customers with specific messages, but we can still be smart about these. For example, if you're selling over cold email with the goal of them visiting the website or getting on the phone, I'd have a four drip email sequence. The first email is hyper-personalized, after that the next three are less so. They add value and add trust and have a call to action, but they go out every couple of days so you don't need to think about it. I'd pull together an FAQ page for one of the emails that has highly specific questions that are linked to a webpage with answers. Something like, what are the activities during the sabbatical? What's the science-based part? How often do employees need this? And what do agreements look like? With email software, you can track which questions people click on. This gives you insight into where they are in the process. You can then follow up with more info or bucket them accordingly. I'd use a sales tool, something like Streak or Pipedrive or whatever else you'd like to use to track opens and clicks and behavior. Tie everything back to your personas, know who you're sending stuff to, and see what resonates for each customer segment. Every interaction you have with your customer is solid gold. Figure out how to build trust, how to help them, how to keep learning more about their problems so you can add context and expertise to the conversation. Learn how to ask them hard questions and have the stomach to follow through. In a previous life, I helped a business sell a SaaS tool, and the more we challenged people on the call, the more we sold. Be an unapologetic expert, one who understands the problem and can help, and don't ever be like the Honda dealership. Which brings us back to how I'd sell a car. We're two years into the lease of the car we bought during lockdown. We drove cross-country. We drove on weekends. We drove a lot. We're 10,000 miles over our allotted miles. When I talk to friends, they're 10,000 miles over too because they did the same stuff. What if Honda knew this and instead of being bloodsuckers, tried to help? An email with the subject, what to do if you're way over your lease miles, and then maybe the subject of the email, hey, you're probably way over your lease miles. It was really hard to predict and most people are. In your contract, you've got to pay 25 cents a mile. If you're 10,000 miles over, that's an extra 2,500 bucks. If this is you, here's what we'd suggest. First, your car is in high demand. If you trade it in, we can cancel out that 2,500 you know. That puts you at square one. We can then lease you a new car, the newer model, the CRV. Unfortunately, prices have gone up because of that demand, so your monthly price is going to go up a little bit, but you're going to have to pay $2,500 either way, so this isn't that big of a deal. If you're interested in this or any of a few other options, let's hop on a call. And at the end of the day, that's exactly what they were trying to get me to do anyway. Selling is hard and uncomfortable, but if you want to build a business, it's necessary. And it's necessary now. Here's how I'd start. Here's the cliff notes. Find channels to reach your customers that'll build trust because of specificity. Never spray and pray. Your mindset is vetting customers, not selling to everyone. So vet them. Pitch specific problems and specific solutions to the customers you think will want these most. Learn if they do, adjust if they don't. Be the expert, challenge them, give them context, tell them what's worked. Don't lay down and pretend like they know everything. You've worked hard to talk with lots of people, flex those muscles. Talk about price early and charge based on the value of the problem you're solving. Charge a lot. Don't apologize for it. Don't feel bad for it. You're worth it, even if it feels like you aren't. 
Build a system so you don't have to be emotionally exhausted, but that doesn't mean spray and pray. Targeted, add value, learn from your emails with analytics. Most of all, genuinely try to help people. That will always work. And if you want to do this with us, join Tacklebox. We can get you all set up. Head to gettacklebox.com slash no whisper ideas for half off your first month working with us on your startup. Have a great week.